FSB is KPFA's governing board. It reviews the annual budget, selects candidates for management jobs at the station, and sets general station policies. Tomorrow evening, voters will have a chance to meet the candidates in person. There'll be an LSB candidates forum in Berkeley at the Lutheran Church, 1744 University Avenue, beginning at 7 p.m. For more information on the LSB election, visit www.kpfa.org or refer to the election pamphlet that came with your ballot. And the weather for the Bay Area, clear tonight with lows in the 40s, sunny on Sunday, highs in the mid-70s to lower 80s. And that's it for the news tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Angela Bass, Africa Jones, Sean Hamilton, and Julia Varshavsky for helping to prepare tonight's news. With Kelly, uh, Kelly Ramars was our technical producer. She's also our engineer tonight with Sarah Jesse. I'm David Rosenberg. Good evening. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Many thanks to all of you who have helped us in our success in the Fall Fund Drive, where we raised $830,000. And if you feel like you've missed out because you weren't able to call in, you can go to kpfa.org, where we have a list of all the programming and the thank you gifts we featured in the past two weeks. So feel free to visit our archives for programs you may have missed. And again, thanks so much to all of you. So stay with us as we continue on with our arts programming with a special edition of Radio 2050. Buenas noches and welcome to our arts programming that you usually get here at 6.30 every Saturday evening. Normally you have DJ Aztec Parrot with Radio 2050. They'll be back next week. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, and I wanted to take this moment to thank all of you who called in to support us during our fall fund drive. And for the next half hour, we're going to be talking about two Bay Area productions that are taking place through next week. One is Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which is being produced by the Lorraine Hansberry Theater in San Francisco. And the other is a play written by Evangeline Ordaz entitled A Visitor's Guide to Arivaca, which is a multidimensional look at the immigration issue on the Arizona border. This is playing at the Mexican Heritage Plaza Theater in San Jose through November 11th. So stay with us. Mrs. Breedlove was a peculiar sort. All the Breedloves were peculiar. Frida! Well, it's true. Peculiar and funny looking. When I had my girl, I remember I said I love it no matter what it looked like. Actually, the Breedloves were not ugly so much as they were just poor and black and believed that they were ugly. They were peculiar. You already said that. Well, it's true. Please, God, please make me disappear. Please, 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 God. Peculiar like they lived in a storefront instead of a regular house. Mm-hmm. And Pecola called her mother Mrs. Breedlove. Peculiar. I went to the hospital when my time come. Didn't want to have it at home. They put me in a big room with a whole mess of women. The pain was coming, but not too bad. The doctors come to examine me. Please, God, make me invisible. Please, please, please. One old doctor was learning the babies, the young ones, about babies. And when he got to me, he said, now, these here women you don't have any trouble with. They deliver right away with no pain, just like horses. Pecola's pain antagonized me. I wanted to open her up, 
crisp her edges, ram a stick down that hunched and curving spine. I wanted to force her to stand erect and spit the misery out on the streets. Mm-hmm, but she held her misery. We can just laugh into her eyes. Amen. If I squeeze my eyes shut real tight, little parts of my body go away. But I have to do it real slow-like. Then in a rush, first off my fingers go, one by one. Then my arms disappear, all the way to my elbows. My feet now, yes, that's right, good. My legs go all at once. Above my thighs is the hardest part. I have to be real still and pull and pull and pull. When my stomach goes away, the chest and neck follow along pretty easy. The face is hard, too. Almost done. Almost. <clears throat> But my eyes is always left. Only one of the doctor students ever looked at me, looked in my eyes. I looked right back at him. He dropped his eyes and turned red. He knowed, I reckon, that maybe I weren't no horse foaling. It don't matter how hard I try. My eyes is always left. And I try. Every night, I pray for God to deliver me blue eyes. I've prayed now going on a year. But I have hope still. I, I figure God is very busy and I am very young. To have something wonderful as that happen would have to take a long, long time. Blue eyes like Shirley Temple. Oh, 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 or Mary Jane on the Mary Jane candies. Oh, 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 Jane in the primer at school. I see them doctors talking to them white women. How you feel? Gonna have twins? Nice, friendly talk. When them pains got hold, I moaned something awful. But they weren't as bad as I let on, but I'd let them people know. But having a baby was more than a bowel movement. I hurt just like them white women. Just because they think I knowed how to have a baby with no fuss and my behind wasn't pulling and aching like theirs. Besides, the doctor don't know what he's talking about. He must never see no mare foal. Who say they can't have no pain? Just because she don't cry, because she don't say they think it ain't there. If you look in her eyes, see them eyeballs lolling back, see the sorrowful look, they'd know. Anyway, the baby come. And people would have to be nice. And, and the teachers would see me. They would really look at me in my eyes and say, Look at pretty-eyed Bacola. We mustn't do bad things in front of those pretty eyes. Pretty eyes. Pretty blue eyes. Big blue pretty eyes. You just heard an excerpt of Toni Morrison's play, The Bluest Eye, that tells the story of a young black girl growing up in Ohio in the 1940s who yearns to see the world through a different set of eyes. The Bluest Eye, published in 1970, brought to life Picola Breedlove, the heart-sick, lonely, and abused central character in the novel. Lydia Diamond has adopted the novel for the stage that is playing at the Lorraine Hansberry Theater in San Francisco. I have some members of the cast here with me today to talk about the play. We are joined by Tamika White, who plays Mrs. Breedlove, Carla Punch, who plays Claudia, Nicole Harvey, who plays Frida and Darlene, and Shanique S. Scott, who plays Piccola. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank, thank you for having us. us. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Lydia Diamond has stayed true to the book in depicting this African-American family struggling with issues of identity and race. Do you think a lot has changed for young girls and self-image? Huh. I'm, I'm going to have to say no because we're still struggling with this whole idea thing of identity. Where we work, I mean, obviously in an industry where supposedly a great deal of it is about image. Uh, we have magazines and advertisement that's constantly saturated uh, with this message, just drives it home on, you know, we're, it's kind of like a contradiction, I think, what we society kind of sell our, our, to our youth. You know, well, one way, be comfortable with who you are, but then look like this. Uh, culturally speaking, um, we still see what is majority drives those images. We still see Caucasian, blonde hair, blue eyes, which, of course, is very much prevalent with this show. Um, for this young black girl to wish for blue eyes as if that makes or breaks her life, but in her small mind, she believes that. Is that happening in the 21st century? We might not have that story told, but I'm sure somewhere there's some ethnic child somewhere that's not satisfied with how he she or she looked to have this discussion on this on on Toni Morrison's novel to have this production and see how it still rings true today is pretty fascinating and scary at the same time like it's almost like did she see a crystal ball but then no it's just something that we that's lived and it keeps it discontinues mm -hmm. well unfortunately we're talking about a really narrow scope of what beauty means in society and but thank goodness you have wonderful playwrights like and authors like Toni Morrison or Josefina Lopez who are real women have curves you know where you know you have America Ferreira of course on the TV show Ugly Betty where she made her film debut is speaking on that you know any woman of color will mm -hmm. can attest to that who defines beauty in society I did want to continue on the topic of beauty and beautiful and what that means. And some of it is, as Toni Morrison uh, recently said, some of our beauty are accidents of birth and some of our virtues. And some of that was explored in The Bluest Eye in terms of grace and what composes somebody beyond the superficial. I wanted each of you to talk about exploring that in the play and what that's meant to you. I think it's brilliant on Lydia Diamond's part on how she adapted it and took us each, every every character. Is, uh, we, there's an introduction, there's an explanation of our, our chronological journey of how we became these not so beautiful people uh, with, uh, for whatever reason. Pauline Breedlove, who was once Pauline Williams, she 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 was very much a dreamer. She wanted she wanted like I guess like any woman wants. You know, you want a family, you want a nice home, you want a you want a nice husband. None of those things came to fruition for her. The song we sing, "Precious Lord," throughout the piece. How the song is at the beginning, sung with such cheer and, and and joy. Then there's a there's something very tired in her delivery of the song. All of that to say that it does. It goes beyond a different virtue of, of beauty in the sense where we're dealing with not only economical status, not just physical beauty, but just how one is mentally, emotionally exhausted and which pretty much p 
piles upon this self-loathing. There's a, mm-hmm. um, a part in the play where Claudia is talking about the Breedloves wore their ugliness and mm-hmm. carried it as a cloak. And she's talking about the family, you know, Miss Breedlove, Charlie, who's the father who ends up at the, um, towards the end raping his daughter. Um, and that's an example of his quote-unquote ugliness. And the example of Pocola's quote-unquote ugliness is the, her taking it in. The, they wore their ugliness. Charlie wore his ugliness with his, um, you know, his alcoholism and his his freedom of, like, I, I don't care. what I, I'm just going to go and do whatever comes to mind. And Pocola's ugliness is actually, it, it, it's it's. It's really her taking it in and claiming it. Like in the scene where she says, um, you know, it, it was supported by every glance, and they all say, yes, you are right. It's their taking it in, claiming it, and that, that self-hatred, that, 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 that becomes the ugliness. Almost like know? surrendering to it. Yeah, it's surrendering to ugliness, you know. I did want to finally ask each of you, what is it that you're taking with you? I think for me that children can't really run from their pain. They don't have what we have as adults to be able to um, find resources. Children have are like sponges, so everything around them gets to them to the core. Pocola Breedlove cannot escape the racism around her. She cannot escape her mother's brutality towards her. She cannot escape the rape. And she doesn't have a, a, a mind enough, like a, the brain capacity enough to understand what's happening to her. So everything goes inward and becomes um, her fault. So her um, believing she's ugly and this obsession with these eyes, thinking like, well, that's going to give me the love. You know, because it must be me. It must be that I'm unlovable. And that is going to give me the love. And the the, the deep obsession with it, uh, wow, it's just blowing me away. And that she can't. She can't escape this. And um, and it, it is a tragedy. And it's a tragedy for a lot of young black girls who did not make it past that. And, and Pocola is... Is, is an example of a character who did not make it. Carla? This may sound really, really unusual, but because of my connection and nurturing of Pacola, I think that with all the metaphors in the story, I, I, I think that I see flowers very differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, Marigolds, the way Pacola, I'd never seen dandelions in a way that Pacola described dandelions, which is, I think, what she saw as parallel to to, to herself. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the things. And I think that I, I, I walk away, uh, my character walks away wanting every night to call my sister and to have her continue empower, to, to, to empower my little niece to say, you're, it's okay to be dark-skinned. It's okay to have your hair a little curly. It's okay that you don't have blue eyes. To take pride in who you are and that that's okay. Mm-hmm. That you don't need this ideal beauty to validate who you are. Nicole, 
I say I walked away with the thought of that when stuff like that happens to a child, it's actually a community effort, mm. not just some, something that um, that um, people can do by themselves, um, even young and old, because it was, wasn't just Pecola that had problems. It was the parents. Uh, it was also the community, um, the women that were in the community that said um, all these things that just made it worse and worse. So it's like a, a community effort. And I feel that it's the way to do this is to start the way of um, mentally helping people, not just black people, white people, everybody, because it's also something, it's a deep-seated issue that is going to take a long time, even way after my, I'm dead, to get this thing taken care of. Mm. And it's just a way for us to find out also, too, as African Americans, to feel that we need to find that our history um, that the history that was lost to us, so we can feel that we can that we belong, because we're also a a, a group of people in this um, in this society that was taken away from from our, our past, our history, everything that 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 is known to us. So we have to learn how to find ways to love ourselves, even if we are called African Americans or ex slaves or whatever we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we have to find a way to belong as mm-hmm. a community to bring that back. Yeah. And finally, Tamika. I will say by way of my character, Ms. Uh, Breedlove, what one walks away with with this piece, and I mean collectively, not just individual, not just Mrs. Breedlove. I'm talking about every one in this in in this cast of characters in this story. Is how does one begin to forgive, truly forgive, in order to start healing? So I've been or having that conversation with myself on how do we begin to heal because on a personal level i relate to the story on more than on so many levels Uh so what i walk away from is is thank god i think i know how to forgive i've just learned that later on in my life um with the with the breed loves in my life and other people that i know that had breed loves in their lives and to know that it's okay (laughs) <laughs> it's okay to be me. I am an African-American, full-figured woman. I don't apologize for it at all. I'm not going to. And I don't think anyone should be. And I think that every child on this planet is beautiful, is a blessing. And I walk away with saying thank God for the wonderful wordsmith like Toni Morrison and Ntozaki Shange and the Josefina Lopez and the Anna Castillos of the world who are courageous enough to tell these stories because it's not just a Pecola breed love story. Mm. It is everyone's story. Mm. And that's what I walked away with. That was the voice of Tamika White with Nicole Harley and Carla Punch and Shanique S. Scott. And they're all part of this amazing cast that is playing uh, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, adapted for the stage by Lydia R. Diamond and directed by Walter Dellis. And this is playing through November 11th at the Lorraine Hansberry Theater that is located at Union Square. So if you want more information, you can call 415-474-8800, or you could go to the website at www.lhtsf. Women, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. you. While the immigration debate continues with politicians, with a wall running thousands of miles across the border between the United States and Mexico, immigrants continue to suffer along the border as they cross to a new life, some pain with theirs. 
this year alone has seen close to 300 deaths along the border. Putting a human face to this reality is Teatro Vision that is presenting a multi-dimensional look at the immigration issue on the Arizona border. And with me to talk about that is Mike Wilson, who's a member of the Tohono O'odham tribe, and he's going to be talking about his experience placing water stations on the desert from the standpoint of a native and activist. And I also have with me Elisa Marina Alvarado, who is the artistic director and is also one of the founding members of Teatro Vision. She has worked as an actress, director, and community organizer and has been active in the Chicano movement for over 30 years. I wanted to start with you, Mike, because you have been very, very active in what's been going on in the border, particularly in Arizona, and I wanted you to describe that work that you've been doing. What I've been doing now for going on uh, six years I have been putting out uh, water that I maintain seven of the water stations uh, for migrants. As they come through, they're, they're coming from the state of Sonora, and they're coming through tribal lands. And a disproportionate number of migrants die on tribal lands as, as they do come north. Uh, regrettably, the government of the Thonotum Nation does not permit any of the, of the humanitarian groups uh, that includes no more deaths, humane borders, or Samaritans. None of those humanitarian can, groups can come on tribal lands. Can you uh, talk about why that is? Uh, the perception by the, the tribal government. But let me be very, very, very clear about the distinction between the Thono Othan people and the Thono Othan tribal government. Othan people have always practiced a humanitarian, a, a uh, provided uh, humanitarian aid to migrants crossing uh, through the border. However, because hundreds if not thousands that come across daily during the summer, the tribal members who live along the, uh, the boundary line can no longer sustain that humanitarian aid. And this is why I believe it's the responsibility of the Thorn or the tribal government to uh, to take that responsibility to provide uh, to provide humanitarian aid, the the tribal government's position is that if anybody provides humanitarian aid, whether it's food, medical aid, but in particular water, if water is placed in the desert on the Thon Oat and tribal lands, it will only encourage more migrants to come across tribal lands, and so they don't want anybody coming across tribal lands who's not a tribal member. So that's that's their position. And do you think this is driven by nationalism, or do you think it's as a result of uh, potentially political pressure? What it is is uh, part of this mosaic of immigration, this mosaic that's taking place, uh, because of the Border Patrol's policy to selectively militarize the border. They've left what the Border Patrol euphemistically calls the Western Desert, they left the western desert open. They militarized the San Diego area. They militarized the El Paso, Texas area. And they left the western desert open, uh, possibly thinking that the desert would create a natural barrier to migration. Well, it hasn't. And so part of that western desert is the Thorno Autumn tribal lands. So uh, what the policy has done is created a, a funneling effect. So now you have a disproportionate number of migrants coming through tribal lands from Sonora into Arizona. 
and consequently you have a disproportionate number of migrant deaths uh, on tribal lands. And part of this uh, scenario is, is also tribal members on the reservation. Uh, their world vision is only as, as wide as the nation is wide and as deep as the nation is long north to south. So anybody, uh, if you're not a tribal member, you are certainly not welcome on the nation's land, including humanitarian aid workers from Tucson or migrants coming from Mexico. They're seen as a possibly as a threat to the culture. So it's this very, very limited, very, very restricted uh, world vision that contributes to the problem. My guest is Mike Wilson, along with Elisa Alvarado, who is the artistic director of this play. It's been written by Evangeline Ordaz, who is an attorney with experience in the documentation of human rights abuses. And why this play? We felt that the play captures uh, the complex world of the border right now in terms of immigration. The, the conversation or the conflict, uh, the, all the, the different views the different dimensions of the reality of the border. Uh, up here, I think in the Bay Area, while we have a very active immigrants' rights movement, we often don't have an opportunity to really have an, uh, gain an insight into what it's like actually doing immigrants' rights work on the border um, in, the, in, in one of the harshest environments you know, on this earth. It's always been part of the mission of Chicano Theater to do plays that are about our reality as a people, a Chicano, a Mexicano people, um, and as an indigenous people. And this play was very interesting to us because it it also includes a discussion of the Tohono uh, O'odham people um, and what the impact of migration and the the valiant efforts to, to try and help save lives. Uh, we don't see it as our place to, you know, that, to make a judgment in terms of what that that tribe should do or should not do, but but we thought it was very important that that there be understanding of, of an insight into the impact of the the increased numbers of, of migrants that are crossing. In addition to the uh, the character that is based on Mike Wilson, inspired by Mike Wilson and the, and the humanitarian work that he's been doing, uh, there's also a, a young couple, migrant couple that is um, have left Gurimeo, Michoacan, and are crossing the desert um, on their own, trying to follow a, a group that's being led by a coyote trying to do that unnoticed because they don't have the money to pay a coyote. And so within the young couple braving this journey, you have ranchers, border patrol agents, and vigilante groups who uh, confront the Samaritan group. So you actually have the debate on stage. Right. It's, the play's interesting, too, because we have um, a border keeper, kind of like the Minuteman, and his character is, uh, is drawn in a way that we gain an, in, an insight into how um, white people, people that have also, in a sense, been victims of this system of the outsourcing of jobs, for example, and, and being left here unemployed, and how there's um, the government points the finger at migrants for the hardships faced by, by white working people in this country. So that it's um, it, we gain um, a broader picture, I think, of of why uh, people turn to or become involved in in things like the Minutemen. 
the voice of Elisa Marina Alvarado, who's the artistic director of the play that we're talking about right now, which is Visitor's Guide to Arivaca, and that's playing through November 11th at the Mexican Heritage Plaza Theater in San Jose. We'll give you more information about that, along with Mike Wilson, who is here, uh, is a member of the Tohono O'odham tribe. I wonder, what is the audience taking away? Because people feel strongly about this issue either either way. The reason why I bring that up is I know that you are part of a discussion that takes place after, I believe, Mike Wilson? Yes, I am. And I wondered how many people that are anti-immigration or uh, really want to uh, close the borders are part of that. Are they coming to see this play? Um, I, I believe so. I mean, there's not a unanimous, a unanimous uh, perspective on immigration, certainly within the Chicano-Mexicano movement. In the Chicano movement, I know I've known many people that have been here um, several generations and talk about, you know, I, I came across legally, why shouldn't they? And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of, of, of Chicanos just are also, unfortunately, uh, in competition in a sense uh, for, for jobs, jobs like you know, dishwashing and that, um, so that it's easy to kind of turn and blame those that are in in really your same situation. Um, so I, I do believe that there's there's a, a great diversity of, of opinions about immigration um, mm-hmm. within the, the Chicano community. And I think, if anything, what I hope is that people take away a desire to find a, a humane solution. You know, at this point, I don't think it's going to happen that we're going to just do away with the border altogether, um, uh, you know, an open border. But there definitely should be a humane form of, of addressing uh, migration, immigration. And at the same time, of course, that uh, that the country also acknowledges that immigrant labor has long been part of the infrastructure of this country. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that... Um, 